A pastor once wrote, In the first five years of my ministry, I had a sign on my desk, Win the world for Christ. In my second five years of ministry, I put up a new sign, Win one or two for Christ. Now I have this sign, Try not to lose too many. Which seems a little cynical, I know, but it is easy to be discouraged by people who flounder in their faith, people who fall away from the faith. I've probably experienced more discouragement in the past two years than in the previous 34 of ministry. John Stott said that discouragement is the occupational hazard of the Christian ministry. Mary Moffat, a missionary, said, Could we but see the smallest fruit We could rejoice amidst the privation and toils which we bear, but as it is, our hands do often hang down. William Carey, of his fellow passengers aboard ship on the way to India, wrote, Sometimes I am quite dejected by what I see on board, the hard hearts of those with us. They hear us preach on the Lord's day, but we are forced to witness their disregard to God all through the week. Hudson Taylor said, every day, almost every hour, the consciousness of failure and sin oppresses me. I think that's why the Holy Spirit had Paul write to the Corinthians, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Bad news discourages us. Good news encourages us. And today in 1 Thessalonians 3 verses 6 through 10, Paul tells how he was brought out of discouragement and was encouraged by the good news of the Thessalonians' faith and love. They weren't just surviving. You know, he had sent Timothy because he was so worried, he was so anxious about them, he wondered if they had caved in to the pressure of persecution, and he finds out they weren't just surviving, but thriving in Christ. And it, revived, it reinvigorated his desire to help them, because good news of others' faith and love encourages yours. When you hear good news of someone else's faith and love, you get encouraged. The context in 1 Thessalonians, where, where Paul is saying, I'm, I'm so encouraged now, is that of the beloved becoming beloved as they, as they actively wait for the return of Christ, as they're ministering for Christ in light of his return, and they're part of a beloved church that is changed by the gospel and connected in relationships and committed to ministry. And they're pleasing God, and they're modeling ministry that is lives that are godly and giving godly help and God's work at word and uh, God's word at work in those who believe. They're joined at the heart. They love each other intensely. They are are esteeming one another highly. And here is Paul. He's writing to a church of young believers who were under persecution. They were in crisis. They were they were tempted to to fall to the pressure. They were tempted to go back to pagan idolatrous ways. And so Paul was rightly concerned. Paul was rightly worried. 
And so he sends a sympathetic helper in Timothy who willingly sacrifices his comfort, willingly sacrifices his plans, and suffers together with his beloved family in Christ. And then he brings back news of their faith and their love. And it just lights a fire under Paul. Because good news of growth revives your soul to serve God's purposes. Good news of others' faith and love encourages yours. What we see in this passage is that there's such a blessing with the good news that people are growing in Christ. Good news of growth blesses you. Paul was overjoyed by Timothy's news that he brought. It was the opposite of what he feared. He had feared that they had caved in. He had feared that they would... would buckle under the pressure, and instead he gets greatly encouraged and he is moved to thank God and pray because God had done a work. He had used Timothy to do good work. He served Christ by serving the church and Timothy comes back with a good report. They're encouraged. Look at verse 6. He says it this way, just quite simply, now Timothy has come back to us from you. Timothy had just come to us from you. A short time before Paul starts to write this letter, we see the background of this in Acts, in the the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 18. You notice that Timothy and Silas arrive at Corinth at the same time, and Paul is occupied with the word. He is preaching the gospel. They had come some 350 miles to be with him. And it may have well been Timbuktu because it took them a long time. Today, you can drive the 350 miles uh, from what is now Thessaloniki, Greece, to Corinth, Greece, in five and a half hours in your car. Then they were on foot travel, and it, that was primary, and so we're talking weeks to get there. But how did we get to where we are right now, where Paul is saying, now I'm encouraged, I was worried, but now I'm, I'm bolstered by this news. You go back into Acts 16, and what you'll notice is that Paul, and this is how he got to Thessalonica, he was hindered by God's divine intervention from going south into the province of Asia and north into Bithynia, and he goes to Troas late March, early April, A.D. 49. And he goes from this city on the western edge of Asia Minor, and he is directed by God to cross the Aegean Sea into Macedonia, and this this changes history. Because now the gospel is going into Europe for the first time. He arrives at the port of Neapolis after a two-day voyage, and Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy take a one-day journey of 10 miles, and they go to Philippi, a larger city up north. They stay there about two months. They do some great ministry. A lot of people get saved. A lot of people grow in their faith. But they have to leave Philippi, and this is a common theme, from, because of pressure from city officials. And every time they would leave, they would say, well, it's better to leave than to bring more hardship upon the church. And so they left. They go west toward Thessalonica. They go 100 miles. It's a five-day journey. And surely it was a painful journey because they had been in jail in Philippi. Can you imagine the, the injuries they sustained while they were in Philippi? And now they're walking for five days, 100 miles. They follow the famous Ignatian Way, cross Macedonia east to west, and they come to Thessalonica. It's a town of about 200,000 people. It is a free city ruled by a council of their own citizens. It was founded by Macedonian general Cassander in 315 B.C. It was an old city by this time. 
It was named after the stepsister of Alexander the Great. Now, Paul probably spent somewhere between several weeks and several months there. More and more I study this, the more I think that he spent several months. That would have given ample time for these new believers, these, these Jews, to break free from the synagogue, but also these other new believers, Gentiles, to reject their idolatrous ways and break free from that. So three months in, give or take, they're starting to grow. The Christian assembly is, is growing. The Jews become jealous. They incite riots. They force Paul and company out of town. They travel two and a half days, the 50 miles to Berea. They stay there seven weeks. And then Paul is chased out of Berea, no surprise, and goes to Athens. He stays there two months. And then he goes to Corinth, probably January of A.D. 50. He stays 18 to 20 months. Now, during this time, Timothy takes the trip to Thessalonica, stays there, ministers amongst them, strengthens them in the faith, puts up the restraining wall for them so they can grow in the faith and teach them the word. And, and then he probably, when he's returning, it's probably later on in A.D. 50. Right? As Paul, because of the news, starts to write this letter. By the time he wrote, news of the Thessalonian Christians had spread far and wide and some even had died in that assembly. As you get into chapter 4, we see that he's explaining, here's what happens when a Christian dies. But Paul wants them to know, and he's writing them this because he wants them to know how much they're loved by God, how much they're loved by him. And so he had sent Timothy. And Timothy returns with this good news of their faith and love. It's like Proverbs 25, 25. Like cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a distant land. In verse 6 he says, Timothy has come and brought us good news. The good news from the distant land had come to them. It's interesting, though, that brought us good news phrase. It's five words in English. Some translations of the Bible say it in four words, brought us good news. But most English translations use these four or five words to say one Greek word, one word, and it's a unique word. He's brought the good news. He doesn't use a neutral verb like he's telling us something. In chapter 1, verse 9, they themselves report or tell the reception that you, ha- you gave us and you turned to God from idols to serve the living true God. He doesn't use just a common word like they told us something. He uses the word that everywhere else in the New Testament is used for preaching the gospel. And this is the only time it's used not referring to the gospel. Yuangalizo. It means to announce good news, to preach the gospel. And literally he's saying they came and... And, and Timothy came and evangelized us with this, this news. Like, this is earth-shattering news. Why would Paul put this report of Timothy in this kind of, you know, rarefied air? Why would he put it in this rare category? It's because of how highly he loved and esteemed his brothers and sisters in Christ. Good news of your faith and love, and such good news, he uses the word, for preaching the gospel. It's about your faith and love. What, what is that? What's their faith and love? Faith and love signifies Christian growth. John Calvin said it this way, faith and love is the sum total of godliness. See, they were growing in godliness. They were growing in Christ. 
The report about them was spiritual as well as personal. Their faith and love, it describes their growth in godliness. In Galatians 5, 6, Paul says, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. In Ephesians 1, he says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. I've heard of your faith in Christ. I have heard of your love for all the saints. And I don't cease giving thanks to God for you, remembering you in my prayers, because you're growing in Christ. The good news of other believers' growth in godliness and growth in Christ ought to refresh our souls, ought to uh, reinvigorate us like cold water on a hot day or like a face wash in the morning, or like a brisk walk. Paul was refreshed by the return of his two associates. Think about it. He had moved from Athens to Corinth. There were new Christian fellowships that had been developed. He was with the church. He was engaged with fellowship in the church, but these were his closest co-workers. This tells you people matter, and specific people matter. That we ought to value one another. There's mutual affection. He says that Timothy, verse 6, he says, Timothy reported that you always remember us kindly. You think kindly of us. You have pleasant memories of us. And you long to see us just as we long to see you. Timothy reported the kind feelings towards Paul. It proved that they didn't believe the accusations against Paul. They didn't believe the false accusations that he was just some exploiting, disinterested person that was trying to manipulate them. He has told you that you all, he's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and, and a further item of good news, you long to see us just as we long to see you. I remember back in 1999, I was on a missions trip to India and Nepal, and at that time we had three kids, and Angela and our three kids, Ariana was like a baby, I think, and so only three kids out of five at that time, and I remember being on this 18-day missions trip and missing them so much, and I, back then, you know, I, I made a couple calls, it's not as easy to make the calls back then as it is now, and I remember talking on the phone, and it was like kind of crackling and kind of breaking out. And I'm like, I miss you. I love you. I can't wait to be home. And isn't it, wouldn't it be weird if they would have said, hey, you can stay longer if you want. We don't miss you. We're good. There was a mutual affection and a mutual longing. It's like when, when kids want to see their grandma and grandpa, and grandma and grandpa want to see the kids. But here's the deal. We live in such a hypermobile, hyperconnected, hyperfluid, frantic time that we are too busy to look each other in the eye. I am so thankful that I get to preach from this pulpit and look you in the eye every Sunday and then throughout the week as people get together. They didn't travel or communicate like us and their love was strong and they had to work really hard to get to each other. How much do you want to see your brothers and sisters in Christ? How much were you looking forward to being together this morning? I know you, I know you were. You wanted to be here. 
And so you gathered. So commendable. Such love, such mutual affection. This good news that Timothy was bringing, it just was a blessing. Just like you coming today, it's a blessing that you show up. The good news of growth. The good news of, wow, people are, are being saved and they're being sanctified. Praise God. What a blessing. You'll notice too in verse 7 that this good news of growth, it comforts. It comforts. This info almost overwhelmed Paul. He couldn't contain his excitement. He literally, and you don't see it as you read the verse, he literally is shouting to the heavens. And here's what he says. For this reason, verse 7, like, therefore, brothers, brethren, brothers and sisters, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted. And he uses the word comforted there, which is the same word used for the Holy Spirit's work in a believer's heart. Comforted, encouraged about you through your faith. And so he's saying, in all of our distress and persecution, we were encouraged. We got lifted out of that distress and that discouragement, and we were encouraged about you because of your faith. This is like John saying, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Their presence... It was like smelling salts for Paul's soul. Like an adrenaline shot to the heart. Their faith encouraged his. Why should your faith encourage others? Why should your faith encourage others? It's because God has put you into the body of Christ if you're a believer and your life is bound up with your brothers and sisters in Christ. I was thinking just yesterday about a picture of healthy Christian fellowship and how comforting it is. And the best picture I could come up with is like warm laundry on a couch. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. You can deny it, but every one of you loves it when the warm laundry goes onto the couch and you happen to sit there for a moment and you just want to take a nap amidst the warmth. And some of you do. You know it. And what you need to know, what you need to know is that in all your distress, in all your affliction, God is sovereign. And he comforts you in your affliction and he grows you through the affliction and he providentially sends brothers and sisters in Christ to be of comfort to your soul. Someone once said, faith that can't be tested can't be trusted. And by affliction, the Lord separates the sin that he hates from the soul that he loves. And Spurgeon said, I dare say that the greatest earthly blessing that God can give to any of us is health, with the exception of sickness. As Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong. See, the report about their faith, their growth in Christ, their growth in godliness, their faith and love helped Paul. And this is the common, the common denominator. You see this over and over again. Here is Paul facing distress. That's physical distress. And suffering inflicted by enemies. There's afflictions. And the faith of fellow Christians encouraged him. It gave him a reason to press on. 
It reminded him that he needed to press on. And, and you see it in Romans and 2 Corinthians and Philemon. This was a regular occurrence where Paul was bringing up the fact that your faith encouraged me. This is how I feel when I see progress in young and old. It is encouraging. It helps us keep going. It reminds us that, that God is, is saving and sanctifying as he chooses, as he wills in his time. And he is bringing good even in the midst of, of the shambles that we have made this world. That he is reversing the curse in many lives, that he is renewing souls. And, and good news of growth blesses and comforts like that. What you also notice that there's good news of someone else's growth in Christ, it, it renews your resolve. Verse 8, he says this. this. This is huge. He says, now we live. Well, what, were they dead before? <laughs> now we live? He says, now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And he's literally saying, you know, we were as good as dead. I don't know if you remember, but at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, Paul even said, we despaired even of life itself because of the hardship that we had experienced for the gospel. And now he says, now we, we really live. Literally, we can breathe again. The asthma's gone. The, the inhaler worked. We're off a ventilator. We have a new lease on life because you're standing firm in the Lord. We, we live once more. We, our hope has been resurrected. He, he was renewed. He was refreshed. He was re, rejuvenated. He was reinvigorated by, by this news that Timothy brought about the Thessalonians' faith and love, about their growth in godliness. They had continued strong in the Lord, unmoved by detractors. And he found out about that. He found out that they were unshaken by affliction. And it encouraged him to renewed gospel activity because encouragement bolsters your faith and your resolve. Your resolve to serve God's purposes in this generation. Peter said this, after you've suffered for a little while, 1 Peter 5.10 the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Build you up. Peter said, Beloved, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. The picture is of not collapsing not caving in, not cowering in fear. And this can be yours in Christ because Christ lives in you, believer. And not just surviving, but, but thriving. And saying, no matter what I see, no matter what I experience, no matter what comes my way, Christ in me is my hope of glory and I will press on the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus. In C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, the demon Screwtape writes, Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, 
but still intending to do our enemy's will, God's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. You still obey. You still love Christ. You still continue on because of Christ. There's a father of two conjoined twins that are soon to be separated in a surgery and they don't know if these, these babies will live. And here is his testimony of faith in Christ. He says, I don't know if God's will is for us to suffer major loss or show a beautiful, miraculous work. Either way, we trust in him. Because good news of growth in Christ blesses and it comforts and it renews your resolve. And what you'll see next is it leads to to thanksgiving with joy. Verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? What thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy that we have as we we rejoice before God on your account? The result was rejoicing. It was thanksgiving to God. Words failed him. What thanks can we give? There's no way to adequately express it. And and the change in this mood is, is radical. It is radical. All of our distress and persecution has become all the joy we have because of you. And that, that is not superficial. That's not just, you know, oh, it'll, it's a sugar high for a, for a moment. It, it is a heartfelt, sincere joy in the presence of God because God gives you that joy. That joy of knowing that there are people walking in the truth. This is the joy of the psalmist in Psalm 71, verse 14. I will hope continually and will praise you, Lord, yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. It's like Paul said to the Corinthians, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. But if you're anything like me, you have this tendency to not be thankful and that we oftentimes exhibit a degree of thankfulness in life in reverse proportion to the blessings we received. Martin Luther wrote in his book Table Talk, the greater God's gifts and works, the less they are regarded. It's the idea of a hungry person 
being more thankful for one small morsel of bread than the rich in front of a heavily laden table of delicacies. It's like the lonely person living in a retirement home who appreciates one visit more than someone who is popular who gets parties thrown in their honor. It's like a person who would live 75 years under state-imposed atheism and finally gets their own copy of the Bible and they treasure that one book more than, than we for our multiple Bibles and translations and resources. Ralph Waldo Emerson observed that if the constellations appeared once in a thousand years, what an exciting event it would be. But because they're there every night, we barely notice. I think one evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in a believing heart is a gradual reversal of that twisted pattern where we express thanks in proportion to the gifts and the blessings that God has granted by his grace. Every one of us loves getting good news. I love hearing about how people are growing in Christ, people coming to faith in Christ. There's a certain relief knowing that people are doing well in their faith. It leads us to rejoice. It leads us to thank God for his goodness in the gospel. But it is also very easy to miss all of that. Someone has said that when you go to bed tonight, put your slippers further under your bed so that when you get up in the morning, you have to get on your knees. And while you're there, thank God for every blessing. Because good news of growth blesses and, and, and it comforts. Great encouragement. And, and it renews your resolve. Like, I want to serve God more. And it leads you to have thanksgiving with, with joy. It also leads to prayer. Verse 10, as we pray most earnestly night and day. Good news of growth leads to prayer for discipleship. We pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face. They're praying in defiance of Satan's hindrances to visit them. They want to see each other face to face. Paul said to Timothy, I thank God whom I serve as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Now, is this saying, well, Paul, you know, he didn't do anything but pray. He had his eyes closed all the time. You know, he's going to crash walking into, into poles or steering his camel into a hut. Or so. You know, what's, what, was he, what was he doing night and day? He was just praying every moment. Night and day does not mean that he did nothing but pray. But it also does not mean once in the morning, check. Once in the evening, check. I can go do my thing because I did my two prayers. What this means when he says we're praying night and day, earnestly night and day, praying earnestly night and day. So earnestly, the prayer was intense and night and day as the prayer was often. The prayer was ongoing. The prayer was extremely frequent and intense. 
And then we come to a very curious comment at the end of verse 10. If you would put your eyes on that verse and just look at the very end, it says this, praying for you night and day, and I want to I see you face to face. I'm praying earnestly night and day for this, to see you face to face, and supply what is lacking in your faith. I don't know about you, but I want to say, time out, pause. This isn't fitting with what I've heard about the Thessalonians. They were doing great. Their faith and love was on display. There had been no big corrections of them like the Corinthians. I mean, they might have gotten a trophy for like, you know, best godliness award or something. And he says, I want to supply what's lacking in your faith. Let's see what this means. What, what does it mean to supply? Well, it means to fit something together, to join something together, to restore something, to repair something. It was used of a surgeon setting a bone, a fisherman repairing nets, military preparations, a politician bringing people together, people reconciling. So there's something wrong that needs to be fixed, something broken that needs to be put back together. And he says, I want to supply what is lacking in your faith. And the big question is, what was he thinking? What was wrong with the Thessalonians? He just got all this good news about their faith and love. Is Paul the kind of guy that, that finds something wrong all the time? Like the coach that you know, wins 100 games and is like, we have room to improve. What is up? He says, I, I want to make up a spiritual deficiency in you. They'd made progress in the faith. They were loving one another. God carried them through difficulties. But what Paul is saying is this. There was room to improve. Their, their progress in loving was great news. There was room for growth. They were commended for their work that's produced by faith. Yet there was room for more growth. And Paul knew he could help in that department. And the idea is not that he saw some big issue with them it's that they were in process they weren't already perfect they weren't already finished there was something lacking because there was probably gaps in doctrine and understanding of the faith and he wanted them to be mature in christ to be complete to be grown up in christ this is like in romans 1 he says i long to see you that i may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you that we may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. This is like Colossians 1. Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul's saying, I'm bolstered by your faith. I love the fact that you're loving so well and, and you're not fully formed yet. As we are not yet. We're all in process. This is like Galatians 4.19, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. They weren't to rest on their laurels. They weren't to say, well, we've made enough progress. They're in process. They need to be encouraged. They need to be equipped. They need to be edified. And so Paul says, I'm praying to see you and supply what is lacking in your faith. 
There might be correction. There might be some restoration. There's going to be some equipping in the faith. Because there's always room for improvement. There's always room for growth. You don't get to a certain point and say, okay, I'm done. You keep pressing on. Growing in Christ. We like to coast. We get to a certain point where we're like, okay, I'm going to coast for a while. But what God does is he enables ongoing perseverance, ongoing endurance. If you're anything like me, it might be easier to see what is lacking in faith and love than to recognize growth in Christ. To recognize the faith and love that exists. I want you to know that the primary point of this passage is not, hey, there's something lacking. But you need to see what God is doing and rejoice. That he is saving and sanctifying as he wills. I could point to so many of you and, and tell the testimonies of God's grace and goodness in, in things large and small. And, and I'm praying for more. I hope you're praying for more growth in Christ, more progress in the faith, more people coming to know Christ, more people maturing in the faith. If you're not a Christian today, our prayer is that you would come to know Christ and, and be on this, this, this track where, where we say, wow, you're growing in your faith and love. But first, you need to be born again. You need to be born spiritually. You need to come to know Christ. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. You need to, to believe that Jesus, as the Bible says, that Jesus died in your place at the cross and he shed his blood to pay the penalty for your sins and, and you're, you're lost and you're on your way to hell without Jesus and without his, his saving you. And you need to come to faith in him. Believe. Believe that he died in your place. Believe that he was buried. Believe that he rose on the third day. Believe that he's coming back with life, for, with, with blessing, with, with, with the, the restored creation for all who believe. But judgment for those who refuse him. God is saving. God is sanctifying as he wills. Don't refuse him today. Bow the knee to Christ. I could point to so many people whose testimonies are, I was running in the opposite direction from God and God stopped me in my tracks. And I kept hearing the gospel over and over again. And I heard the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. I heard that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I've heard that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. I've heard Jesus in the, in the word, in, in John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And I believed it. God wants you to depend on him in prayer because he hears you, and be praying for more growth. As you hear the good news, say, praise God, and bring more, Lord. That's what Paul's doing. And don't think that, that God is going to you know, take a break and say, no, he... He blessed me or my family or, or this church too much. There's too many people getting saved and sanctified. Let's just, you know, cool it down for a little while and not pray too much about that. No, God's inviting you to pray and pray and pray some more. I love what Tozier said, A.W. Tozier. He said, in coming to God at any time, 
You need not wonder whether you shall find him in a receptive mood. He is always receptive to misery and need, as well as to love and faith. He does not keep office hours nor set aside periods where he will see no one. Neither does he change his mind about anything. And this moment, he feels toward his creatures, toward babies, toward the sick, toward the fallen, toward the sinful, exactly as he did when he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for mankind. Come to know Christ, continue on in Christ. Because good news of others' faith and love encourages yours. It blesses, it comforts, it, it renews your resolve, it, it leads to thanksgiving with joy, it leads to prayer for discipleship. Good news of growth revives your soul. Paul cared so much about his fellow Christians. His, his writing prompt was wanting to encourage them to keep going in the midst of persecution. He wanted to remind them of his sincerity. He wanted to clear up any confusion regarding doctrine or the return of Christ. Whatever need to be strengthened in their common life, whatever improvement is needed, ways that their already strong faith could, could be improved as they seek to be holy as Christ is holy. And he prayed for them. He prayed for the increase of their faith. That is vital. He wrote to them. He wrote a letter to them. That letters can encourage and establish people in their faith. But there is no substitute for face-to-face fellowship in the body of Christ. What God does when we are together, where we are encouraged by each other's faith and love, because it encourages you to keep going. In Galatians 6, verse 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due time... We will reap if we do not give up. You know how many things in life there are where you're like, I know I have to get up and do that, but it's tough, and I don't want to do that. Even when you know the rewards are great. I mean, like working out every day. You're, I'm tired, I don't have any desire. You get up and do it, you're like, I'm so glad I did. It's like going to work every day. You're like, I'm kind of dreading it, I don't want to do it, and then you go, and you're glad you did. It's like loving your family and friends. Even when they've disappointed you, you're like, I know I need to love them. It's like, it's like showing up. It's like you showing up and doing life here with us right now. And if you're on the live stream, I know there's people across the world watching this. Someone in Qatar, Cody in Qatar, I don't know, Patty in France, others that are, are dialing in. There's people very local. I, I talked to someone last night, and Joe, and she says, I want to be there, but I will see you on the live stream. Hi, Joe. It's like showing up and doing life with everyone here, even when you're discouraged. And then hopefully you look around and say, wow, there is someone in this room whose faith encourages me. Praise God. And what you find, here's what you find. You go, wow, we're really different. But we become beloved to one another, and we behold the beauty of Christ together. And our souls are knit together. And we're renewed and refreshed. And, and just being together helps. Just being together in this room together encourages us. Being here with all of you makes me thankful, and it encourages me. Wendell Berry, in his book, Jaber Crow, speaks of that kind of love where just being together is important. Face-to-face means something. Jaber Crow was the town barber, but he also was the church janitor in this small little town called Prince Willem. And he said this, he says, what gave me the most pleasure was just going up there to the church, whatever the occasion, and sitting down with the people. And he said, some like me 
would be outside even when inside because he was an outsider. People didn't really welcome him in. And he says, one day I went up there to work and sleepiness overcame me and I lay down on the floor behind the back pew to take a nap. Waking or sleeping, I couldn't tell which, I saw all the people gathered there who had ever been there and I saw them as I had seen them from the back pew where I sat with Uncle Othi who would not come in any farther while Aunt Cordy sang in the choir and I saw them as I had seen them from the back pew on the Sunday before. And I saw them in all the times past and to come, all somehow there in their own time and in all time and in no time, the cheerfully working, the singing women, the men quiet or reluctant or shy, the weary, the troubled in spirit, the sick, the lame, the desperate, the dying, the little children tucked into the pews beside their elders, the young married couples full of visions, the old men with their dreams, the parents proud of their children, the grandparents with tears in their eyes, the pairs of young lovers attentive only to each other on the edge of the world, the grieving widows and widowers, the mothers and fathers of children newly dead, the proud, the humble, the attentive, the distracted. I saw them all. I saw the creases crisscrossed on the backs of the men's necks and their work-worn hands and the Sunday dresses faded with washing and they were just there. They said nothing and I said nothing and I seemed to love them all with a love that was mine merely because it included me. And Lord, thank you that you paint such a beautiful picture of how your church unites because of the blood of Christ. That even the unsaved can witness Christ's body in action because by this love from you shall they know we are yours. And so Lord, I pray that as we hear good news of faith and love and Christian growth, that even in all of our distress and afflictions, we would be comforted and that we would stand fast and that we would pray expectantly for you to save and sanctify as you will. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.